Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thea and Tom Breeze. Episode 3, Psychology and Education, with Dr. Louise Allen Walker. Hello and welcome back to the podcast and uh, welcome back to the podcast to what we think might be a record-breakingly fast return for a podcast guest. <laughs> Louise Allen Walker, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah. We were just uh, we were just talking about the kind of trials and tribulations at the start of term. We are recording this and our new students are kind of imminently going to be coming onto our programme. So have you had a nice summer, first of all, Louise? Yeah, it's been lovely. Yeah, I went away, went to the Welsh valleys and did nothing for an entire week it was lovely sounds blissful um and you've come to talk to us today obviously we had a a really great podcast episode from you previously and we we didn't have enough time to really delve into some of the things that that you talked about but we are going to be talking to about something that I actually find makes me very nervous my palms are even starting to sweat (laughs) thinking about it but um we we better reveal hadn't we Tom what we've asked Louise uh, to talk to us about do you want to do the big reveal yes so we we talked in the previous episode when we were menaced by the Neuromyth van um, about one or two, th- two things to do with um, cognitive science and education, psychology and all of that kind of thing. And one of the things that we didn't quite manage to delve into as much as we would like is what research really looks like in the psychology field. And the reason we want to do this is because you don't have to go very far on edu Twitter, you know, on the social media education debate. Before you find somebody who is waving around a bit of cognitive science research and basically using it to shut down argument, I guess, people tend to treat it in a quite a black and white way. And if you delve down into some books, I mean, I know we've read Weinstein and Sumeraki, for example, you know, pe- people tend to say, yeah, but if you actually knew about cognitive science research and education and psychology research, you would realise that it's not as black and white as some people think it is so. As a service to our listeners and students and all our friends out there, we have dragged Louise upstairs to our office to actually explain to us what research looks like in psychology, how it differs from the sort of education research that that we tend to carry out and what we need to watch out for and, and be critical about. So where do we start, Louise? How do we open this up for our listeners? Maybe I, you've put together some teaching and learning materials that our students um, will get to see. But I'm just thinking about um, our listeners and if we kind of go right down to basics, what are the different types of research that take place in your field and how do they take place? Yeah, absolutely. So psychology is massive. You know, we're looking at kind of the way the mind and the brain affects behaviour, influences and changes behaviour. So obviously that there's a massive amount within that. So we, we might look at cognitive processes, biological processes, things like personality, social interactions, kind of at every level, developmental um kind of stages or all of these different things and obviously some of these things really really lend themselves to quantitative research which is kind of a lot of the kind of basis of psychology now historically because because psychology is kind of considered to be a science we've really gone the quantitative route and and that's kind of the attitude of of a lot of the older research is that to be really scientific it has to be quantitative Mm -hmm. the tide is turning now and qualitative in the last five to ten years is becoming much more 
popular and psychology becoming much more the forefront, although it's always been present, it's it's been less kind of visible as compared to now. So yeah, so a, a lot of the research in psychology, particularly around things like cognitive processes, biological processes, things that you can measure, they tend to be really quantitative. And for those who are unfamiliar with the term qualitative, how do you define that? Yeah, so... Um, Quantitative research is numerical, qualitative research tends to be kind of word-based or or maybe images, that sort of thing. It it tends to be much kind of bigger data that's harder to pin down. Quantitative data is really numerical and quite, um, I think of it as quite kind of solid, you know, you you have what you have, your your numbers. And those of us that get involved in this kind of thing, we, we talk about worldviews and things like that don't we and and to kind of really boil it down and be really cliched about it I suppose those of us that tend to inhabit the qualitative domain tend to be trying to find people's perceptions of things there's a sense that we're sort of in amongst a really complicated messy situation kind of trying to get at something together that our own biases and our own lived experiences are going to colour it and we kind of live with that there's, I suppose, a caricatured view of the quantitative. I mean, I know you said it's sort of solid there, but some people would go as far as to kind of say, oh, well, you know, if you're in the quantitative domain, you're going to find the truth. It's really black and white, you know. And and I, I guess one of the things we're really interested in is, is to get at how much is that true? How much is that a kind of horrendously <laughs> oversimplified caricature of quantitative? I mean, what kind of things are you trying to find out? Are you looking at perceptions? Are you down in the messy pit of research? Or are you sort of floating above trying to find some kind of objective truth? I, I mean, yeah, so kind of from a, a kind of paradigm type perspective, you know, the idea is that you are trying to find some sort of truth, but our tools are imperfect you know you can't possibly measure every single person in your entire population stats in and of themselves are not the perfect tools and and we can only kind of be sure of something being real to a degree of probability we can only sort of say this is this is most likely true but we can't say for absolute certainty that it is real um one of the big differences which you kind of touched upon there in terms of quant and qual is that in qualitative research, generally you're you're asking a question, you're trying to find the answer, those perceptions that are a bit messier and harder to pin down, potentially. With quantitative, you start with a prediction, you start with a hypothesis. This is what I expect to happen in this piece of research. And you collect the data accordingly. And then you test using statistics, you test to find out whether or not that effect is present that's that's kind of the goal so in some ways quantitative is also much more limiting than qualitative because qualitative i feel it's very open you start with a question but the data takes it where it takes you where it takes you quantitative you are kind of stuck you have this prediction and you test that prediction and that prediction alone and and sometimes you know effects surprise you and you might interpret those differently re uh, kind of reevaluate your theory based on that data but you're never kind of veering outside of the things that you've measured the variables that you've measured and can you give us a flavor of in an education context what you might quantitatively measure yeah absolutely so i mean sort of psychology concepts that are maybe more commonly looked at in, in education might be things like 
bigger picture things like maybe working memory might be interesting to some educators things like uh, different personality traits or, or kind of motivation levels that they're often measured using things like questionnaires for example again going back to those imperfect tools you know obviously the quantitative data you gather is only as good as your questionnaire for motivation and then I guess kind of the more day-to-day stuff that you might get quite easily are things like attendance grades you know these numerical values that you could you could look at and kind of say well actually I didn't do this last year and my grades were kind of this high I've introduced this intervention the following year my grades have improved on average in the class that that sort of thing tends to be easy accessible data for educators in the classroom I'm going to take the plunge now Louise so Emma's going to strap in at this point you mentioned oh, the word statistics I did oh, yes. the word stats. now I'm going to I'm going to confess at this point that I did do an A-level in stats but it feels like a very very long time ago you've told us that quantitative research tends to be about stating a hypothesis and then trying to decide whether it is true or whether it is not true And whenever you sort of come across this research, you hear about the term statistical significance, which, as I understand it, is how sure am I that what I found out wasn't just a random fluke or a coincidence? Um, But I bet you can probably explain that in a far better way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll do my best. Yeah, so as as you, you, you alluded to, Absolutely. You have your hypothesis and, and you you test it. And, and this is called, for anyone who wants to sort of Google further into this process, null hypothesis significance testing. So what we kind of look at is you have your experimental hypothesis or your, your kind of alternative hypothesis that is my effect is real, it's happening. And you have a null hypothesis that is my effect is not real, it's not happening in the data. And basically we're using stats to find out which of those is true. And as you said, yes, we use statistics to look for statistical significance. Is there a significant effect of my manipulation? Is there a significant difference between the two groups that I've examined? That's kind of what we're doing. And um, the main way that we do this is using p-values. So p-values are basically refer to probability. The p kind of stands for probability. So basically, this is a value that tells us how likely it is that that effect is real and just to kind of give you an idea of this the kind of classic example of of where we we kind of got p-values is is from a a statistician called um sir ronald fisher and basically he met a woman who claimed to be able to tell that she could um identify cups of tea that had been made milk first or milk last which is just wonderful (laughs) yeah absolutely very british and i'm i 100 percent agree with her her name um was muriel bristol and i i'm on board i agree with muriel i can always tell if it's been made milk (laughs) she has a place in the history books as a result of her tea-based eccentricities And we won't open the, uh, the 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 wound of should it be one or the other. We'll get into the realms of yeah. uh, scones and cream or, or jam first. Like, we're not going to get into that debate. Yeah, so we'll just talk Very about divisive. The, uh, the red rag to a bull that it is to say to a statistician, I can tell whether the tea is milk first or milk last. What? Having been goaded and provoked in this way, what did Sir Ronald do? Well, so so he kind of came up with this idea of, of p-values and probability to kind of identify whether or not she really could. 
So, you know, generally when, when I ask students, how would you do this? Their first response is, well, I, I would give you two cups of tea, one milk first, one milk last. And then there would be a, a 50% chance of guessing correctly. So that's a p-value of 0.5, so half of one. Probability is always out of one, just in case anyone um, doesn't know that. So that's a p-value of 0.5. Not super reliable. She could get that on a fluke. Mm-hmm. So you might up that probability. So for example, uh, well, so reduce the probability of it being a fluke. So you might use six cups of tea. And because there are 20 different ways that you could arrange those six cups of tea on a desk in front of you, that gives you a one in 20 chance of guessing correctly. So this is a, f- a 5% chance, a p-value of 0.05. Fisher himself felt like a one in 100 chance was the best evidence to support the idea um, that the hypothesis was true, that she really could judge whether or not a cup of tea had been made That's milk first or milk tea. It's a lot of tea. <laughs> Would she yeah. allow toilet bread? <laughs> I really hope so. Um, I, I'll, I'll flag actually, there's a, there's a resource by um, Salzburg 2002 where uh, they wrote all about Ronald Fisher and Muriel Bristol and p-values and t so if anyone's really interested in nailing this kind of history (laughs) aspect of p-values um there is a resource there um so so for fisher he felt like a one in 100 chance was gold standard in terms of probability but actually psychologists in general have settled on a p-value of 0.05 so a one in 20 chance of it being a, a fluke essentially and this was kind of an arbitrary decision so Although we talk about significance as being obviously really important in quantitative methods, and again, the tide is turning on that now, but up until the last sort of five, ten years ago, significance was the absolute goal for research. And I suppose I suppose once that sorry to cut across you, but when that is the goal and the gold standard, if you're a researcher, you chase that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, lots of journals wouldn't necessarily accept publications if the p-values weren't significant so it it did result in a kind of a flood of significant journal articles being published where the effects might not necessarily be replicable or necessarily be kind of true you know once if you have a significant effect you publish it that's great but there doesn't necessarily that kind of neglects all of the research that shows that maybe this effect isn't real maybe someone's tried to replicate it and failed but articles aren't journals aren't interesting in publish, publishing those articles so yeah, it's really it's interesting to have that one size fits all approach I mean Emma and I were talking about this yesterday when we were kind of preparing for this recording and I was saying I mean I know it's not psychology but you know if you were experimenting on a space rocket or an airplane or something like that and you said yeah it's fine I've done this thing and you know it's it seems to be working fine it's a one in 20 chance it's just a fluke <laughs> Uh, but, you know, it's good because that's the gold standard. I mean, I know that's not psychology research, but, you know, I, I would have thought that, that as part of designing a piece of research, you would get to choose your bar for significance, depending on kind of, you know, how important it is that you don't get it wrong. But we've actually gone all of this time just all being perfectly happy with a one in 20 chance. Is that right? Um, sort of. So for some research, so for some research, you might adapt that. So particularly where you've got multiple comparisons. So if you are comparing... If you're making loads and loads of comparisons, you have loads and loads of groups, or the most common thing is um, in neuroimaging research where you look at voxels, which are essentially like three-dimensional pixels 
of kind of brain activity and you're comparing across different um, conditions in an experiment. And because you're making so many comparisons, you lower the p-value and to kind of account for this. So if you're doing lots of comparisons, it's more likely that you'll get something significant just as a fluke. So at that point, you might lower it. Although some of the early neuro research wasn't so good at doing that. So I I did bring along some notes on a study where they kind of showed how important it is that you do this. Because when you do this poorly, especially when you have all of these comparisons, you're likely to find um, significant results that just aren't real. Going back to Tom's point again, just to clarify for listeners as well, there is a different p-value in different fields, such as the medical field. Am I right in saying that there is it one in a hundred that's acceptable? I, I might be wrong on this, but because the stakes are much higher, yeah, in absolutely, that, in, in that field, you'd want <laughs> you yeah. want that to be a little bit different. So, yeah, absolutely. am I right in saying that? Yeah, so psychology, it's point zero five, but yeah, as you say, in the in the medical field, it's much it's much different, and they they do. Uh, in many ways, more tightly controlled experiments as well. Um, randomised control trials tend to be the um, the kind of gold standard of, of medical research. So those are much, much more tightly uh, controlled to, as you say, because the, the stakes are so much higher. Just going to stick my cynical I've worked in schools hat on now at this point and say, because an awful lot of numbers float around in schools, a lot of data and a lot of statistics. And, and one of the kind of sayings I think that I developed um, when I was a teacher was if somebody sticks a number on something or, or you know, involves statistics in something, People or some people are going to spend more effort trying to game that than actually do it properly. I mean, you know, as an example, if you're in a school and you've been told that, you know, you're going to keep your green banding with the Welsh government as long as a small subset of children in year nine get 95% attendance, then, you know, all your pastoral staff are going to be getting those kids out of bed and driving them to school while the rest of the kids can be doing whatever they like, you know, that kind of thing. Is there a similar phenomenon in in quantitative research? I mean, do do we find sometimes that they're they're chasing the numbers rather than doing what I might idealistically call the right thing without necessarily really <laughs> knowing what that thing is? <laughs> oh yeah, so th- I mean, there has been some research looking at this issue, and and certainly, yeah, certainly that the kind of this p value that's kind of held as the gold standard for psychologists ha- has certainly encouraged some less than ethical behavior you know there are some quite for for the very vast majority of us quite distressing examples of of academics who um, had to withdraw papers because they yeah fudged data in some shape or form because because it is quite pressurized in in lots of institutions um publication is kind of tied to your job and and so for some of them yeah there has been some dodgy practices which which have been uh caught thankfully and 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 those papers have been withdrawn from the journals they were published in but i think for the vast majority of us as as the research kind of shows you know most of us we're we're operating as as ethically as we can but of course the issue with replication and the and the issue with with publishing means that often effects aren't revisited and that's kind of the big issue you you run an experiment it's significant and then it's published and because journal articles really the ones that get published are are the kind of sexy new findings the issue becomes well actually 
is this effect true? Can we find it again and again? Can we show mm-hmm. it in multiple contexts? And and that's, I think, been the real issue for psychology over the last kind of 10 years or so is, are those findings consistent? And because journals have in in kind of historically tended to only publish the sexy new things, it means that the older stuff is kind of set in stone and and moved on from without necessarily being re-examined to the extent that you might like so no one had an incentive to do something again no exactly that there was no incentive to 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 rehash experiments that had previously been published and it's a little bit ironic as well when we come back to just briefly talk about qualitative research because something that is a general criticism of qualitative research is that you can't necessarily generalize from it because you can't replicate it perfectly because it's not as tightly controlled the variables are less quantifiable but actually you know there is a similarity there that if you don't redo the study then again can you really generalize it can you can you you know use that significant finding and you know purport that it it therefore is the case yeah but it works for everyone yeah and, and in all situations absolutely and and, and this was something that started to bother psychologists. And around 2015, a, a kind of a group of psychologists from a, across across the whole field really started to really dig down into this. So in 2015, they published a paper in Science where they had tried to replicate 100 experimental and correlational studies. And of these studies that had been published, 97% had been significant. But when they replicated them using all of the same parameters that the original researchers had used, they only found that 36% of the replications were significant. So a lot oh of these gosh. findings weren't coming out the second time round. And and because, you know, as, as Tom said, there's no incentive to revisit effects because they're not published and publication is so important in, in academia in general that... Yeah, this had become a real issue, you know, obviously, the goal of research is to build on what's come before further knowledge. But if you're building on rocky foundations, how can you, how can you be sure that what you're finding is valuable? And so as a result of this in 2015, this caused a really kind of uh, a widespread ripple in psychology research where replications really became a priority for lots of different journals. So lots of publishers began um, running entire journals just about replication so so there was kind of a, an expectation that you'd be able to get publications based on on replications which really hadn't been the case before and then and this kind of involved the previous authors where they would get involved to make sure that the replications were as true as possible to the original and and this has really helped so so now lots of journals publish just on the basis of the proposal as well you, you get special kind of special articles where that they're accepted just on the basis of what you hope to find but if you don't find it and it's not significant you'll still get published because you've been accepted on the basis of the idea as opposed to the mm. whole significant article so this is i think really turned the tide and and it's it's helped all of psychology to really readdress this issue of replication this issue of significance which i think plagued psychology more than lots of other fields in lots of other fields publication of non-significant results was more normalized so in the last six years this has really turned the tide on on kind of making sure that making sure that these effects are real and that we can build on stronger foundations as we kind of move the field along now this is really interesting isn't it because as i said at the start 
It might be a bit of a caricature, but we do see people in the education debate waving around research from your field um, and, and, and related fields, you know, f- uh, fields that, that tend to work in the quantitative domain and just kind of say that, you know, it's black and white and it's purer than pure and we could never argue with the research if it's from cognitive science or psychology or something like that. And what you're telling us here is that actually all is not as rosy on the quantitative side of the fence as those of us who maybe don't understand it might have assumed that it was. So if one of our students or one of our colleagues out in school wants to take the plunge and rather than take the word of these people, which you should never do, actually go and read some of this stuff for themselves and try and make sense of it, I'm sure they would aspire to read it in the same critical kind of um, approach as they would research that they're more comfortable with, qualitative research. What would be your top tips to remain critical when when looking at research from your field? Okay, so I guess replication is kind of the big obvious one. So um, if you find that there are lots of studies that have shown the same effect, that's great. Even better, um, review articles or, or meta-analyses are the absolute cream of the crop in that, in that case. So um, a meta-analysis, if anyone's not familiar, they they run an analysis on kind of all of the analyses that in the papers that they've reviewed and can give some kind of ind- indication of the consistency of the effect the effect is it a real effect is it con- is it working for the vast majority of these articles so if you are looking to kind of change practice on the basis of a of a finding that you've read or, or seen on twitter look to see if someone's done a meta analysis or a review because that will give you some indication of how effective that that might be the other thing to look for as well one of the things that we're kind of veering away from with the idea of p-values is is looking at effect sizes instead so a generally kind of common practice now is to report a p-value and an effect size because sometimes you can get really tiny effects that are significant just because you have loads of people some sample size has a really huge impact on p-values so if you're testing hundreds and hundreds of people sometimes you're finding an effect that isn't real just just because there's tested. bound to be in, yeah. that, in that massive amount of people that you've tested there's bound to be something yeah exactly and and so it's, it's really good to look at the effect size because just because the effect is significant doesn't mean necessarily that the effect is large enough to really make a difference you know you can have a tiny tiny effect that becomes significant that means that the effect is so small it's negligible it's it's not necessarily useful or actionable and actually talking about effect size there that is something we're familiar with over here because um, many of our colleagues out there in school may have come across John Hattie's work and he incorporates a really nice simple explanation of how to calculate an effect size even in your own classroom with something that you're doing so if this sounds interesting to you um, but you want an easy way in you might find that, that for example visible learning by John Hattie or visible learning for teachers which is the and more accessible one and um, contains a lot of this kind of stuff and explains it in a really accessible way. Mm, likewise, the Education Endowment Foundation's uh, teacher toolkit, which again kind of pulls together some uh, meta-analyses uh, in order to throw up different uh, strategies in their effectiveness, but also brings into 
into play the idea of how much it costs um, so they kind of compare how much the uh, intervention costs compared with the impact it's likely to have and there's another variable isn't there Tom I can't remember what it is that cost how how certain they are how much evidence yeah, yeah. How, much how, evidence. how yeah how much evidence there is to back it up so yeah they're they're really sort of accessible teacher friendly and also you know rooted in in our domain areas that you can go to to look at on this or if you really want to take a deep dive come and join louise's program <laughs> <laughs> tell us about it again louise since you're back oh yeah absolutely so uh, i'm the program director for the msc psychology and education so this is a bps accredited conversion program the bps is the british psychological society where we kind of address the the key areas of psychology and we apply them to education and think about how psychology can inform teaching practice and and inform our understanding of learning kind of throughout the lifespan it's time for the bonus round, Em. Yeah, it is. So we thought we'd have a little bit of fun on this because we didn't get to uh, to do this and explore this fully <laughs> in our previous episode. <laughs> and for those of you who have heard that previous episode, you may recall that we were plagued by uh, by a van that came round because you were you were recording from home, weren't you, Louise? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, which we, uh, we we renamed the Neuromyths van, <laughs> and, and it stayed that name in my house. We 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 it's call it back. the Neuromyths van. Every week it comes back. Um, <laughs> Hoping and, for some more Neuromyths. Yes, <laughs> and, and just for context, these are uh, things that that really niggle away at you. Actually, Louise, yeah. uh, they are the bane of your life, and, and a lot of uh, people, and particularly students, come to you um, with with some of these Neuromyths. Um, yeah they're very pervasive and I think uh, you know and and they're just really easy I think I said this in the last one you know humans like an easy simple story and neuromyths paint a nice simple easy story about the brain which just isn't true the brain's much more complicated than that so absolutely we yeah so here's your chance we're (laughs) going to give you three minutes I have got my timer in front of me it's going to make a very interesting sound at the end of three minutes, I think. Um, and in three minutes, we would like you to bust as many neuromyths as you can. Now I can see you're going to take a, a little sip of water before you start. <laughs> We've gone game show style. <laughs> Louise is lubricating the neuromyth busting <laughs> vocal cords. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes, I think one. so. Your time starts now. Okay, so number one, critical periods limit learning. This is a myth. There is really limited evidence for critical periods for learning certain skills, like language tends to be the big one. You can learn new skills throughout throughout your lifespan. Two, listening to classical music makes you smarter. This is called the Mozart effect. Meta-analyses have showed that there might be really slight improvements um, when you're listening to... Uh, classical music as opposed to no music but these tend to be because you are doing something new and exciting they're not necessarily because of the classical music itself three academic skills are localized in the brain this is a myth there are no maths brain areas science brain areas learning new material is a really complex process that uses distributed networks throughout the brain four students should be rewarded all the time to elicit dopamine Dopamine is a a neurotransmitter that's linked to uh, rewards. Um, And although motivation can be linked to dopamine, we don't know whether teachers can influence dopamine using specific strategies. And we also know that that fun 
does not necessarily equal good learning. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, number five, you should expose students to information between three and seven times to result in learning. This is a myth. There is no magic number. It depends on the complexity of the information learned. What we do know, though, is that repetition is important. You should revisit information. Uh, number six, brain development finishes by the time children reach secondary school. This is a myth. The brain continues to develop until around the age of 24, and it continues to change throughout your whole lifespan as you um, experience different things. Seven, brain training is supported by neuroscience. It is not. You get better at the specific tasks that you're practicing, but those effects are not useful in everyday cognition. They don't... Um, that they don't go into re related tasks. Number eight, brain plasticity is due to good pedagogy. Plasticity comes from uh, life experiences, learning, everything in your life. But as we know, learning is not always positive. You're not always learning true, true information. The mechanisms are the same for correct and incorrect information. So getting the information and strategies right from the start is really important. Number nine, when you sleep, your brain shuts down. We know that sleep is super important for attention. It's also um, dreaming, especially, is really important for memory. When you dream and when you sleep, memories are consolidated. And in some cases, you solve problems as well. So sleep is super important. And number 10, um, the brain can multitask. So Generally, when you're multitasking, this happens when you are really automatic on one of those activities or when you're able to use loads of working memory. But this can't be sustained over long periods. Oh. <laughs> can I can I play yes, I've started so I've yes, finished? Started so you can finish. <laughs> um, so we know this can't be sustained over really long periods and research tends to tell us that doing only one thing at a time uh, leads to better performance because actually you're kind of overriding the way that attention usually works, which is kind of extra effort in addition to splitting your attention between two tasks. We have to do this more Ooh. often. Oh, we absolutely do. Louise, that, that was so impressive. <laughs> So impressive. I feel like we need to insert some kind of uh, sound clip here of audience. <laughs> audience going wild. The audience went wild. I'm glad I prepared so many because when I practiced, they didn't get through that many. There we go. You can have a little lie down now. That was intense. Yeah. That's it. I've worked done. Don't and it was still now. not done with you, Louise. You know this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've been on before. Yeah. You've got even more homework that we asked you to do oh for us. And I know that true to form, you, I'm sure, have uh, prepped something interesting for our listeners and maybe something to try. So yes. in any order that you would like, <laughs> and whenever you're ready, take another sip of water if you'd like to. <laughs> oh, it's not, I'm not, I'm not rushing this time. I'm taking my time. <laughs> <laughs> so in as many words as you'd like, something interesting or something to try, please. Brill. So uh, something interesting. I began learning the piano recently in April. Ooh, very good. Kind of a lockdown hobby. And one of the things that I knew before going into it, which I think is really cool and, and thought your listeners might find interesting, is that the brain changes through experience, obviously. And, and specifically, they've looked at piano players and the changes that, that happen as a result of learning to play the piano. And there are two kind of main changes in the brain, which I, I think are quite cool. So the first one is that you have motor areas for your specific fingers in the brain uh, that are responsible for controlling um, the, the motor function of those fingers. And what they find is that in piano players, they get larger 
as you play more piano, basically. Um, And this is associated with better finger movements. They also know that in the primary or auditory cortex, you also get bigger kind of representations of piano tones, which means that you're actually also able to perceive musical notes, piano notes more effectively. And so as I learned to play piano, because I'm a huge nerd, I, I just think about my brain the whole time and how it might change. And, and are you becoming piano. more dexterous generally? I am. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel like I can... Uh, I can tell when I hit a wrong note much better now than I used to be able to, which which implies that my auditory cortex might have changed, which is quite cool. Uh, and definitely I can, um, my fingers don't trip over each other as much as they used to. So I, I think that's a good sign that my kind of dexterity is getting better. So Ooh, and no jam jar can resist you anymore. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, good luck with that. And thanks thank for you. sharing. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's piano recital in three minutes next time. What have you got for something to try? Something to try. Well, I was kind of inspired by my, my neuromyths and, and thought that I would talk about sleep and better kind of sleep hygiene. Uh, because obviously sleep is really important for a ton of different things, mood, attention, memory, as I've said. So I thought it'd be worth kind of talking about that here as I I kind of talked about that myth of sleep not being very useful. So some of the things I I kind of wanted to suggest people might try is um, obviously the big one is phones in the bedroom, people looking at their phones late into the night. I'm sure lots of your listeners are already aware of the, the issue of blue light and how it can keep you awake. So, so obviously turning that off, stopping caffeine before kind of bedtime, if you can, you know, I know tea is obviously super important to all of us, but maybe not having cups of tea late into the afternoon. <laughs> and, and I suppose uh, in light of this episode, if you really wanted to test out this P-value, you could get your partner to uh, put your phone in or take it out in the middle of the night, depending. <laughs> and then you could try and guess whether it was in or whether it wasn't (laughs) yeah absolutely and uh yeah getting to bed sooner as well you know there's some research that kind of indicates that you're you kind of know what rooms are for and and because you habitually do different things in different rooms just getting into bed a bit earlier can kind of trigger the idea that it's time for bed it's time for sleep so yeah you know and things like watching tv in in the bedroom can kind of mean that the bedroom becomes about watching TV instead of sleeping. So kind of make those activities distinct. And research also tends to show, um, particularly with older kids and, and our undergrad students as well, that if you teach them about the importance of sleep, that they kind of start to see the value of it a bit more and can kind of start to change their own habits as well. So um, yeah, sort of, a, I like to plug lots of sleep if I can. <laughs> Well, Dr. Louise Allen-Walker, Programme Director and Podcast Legend. I think we have extracted (laughs) maximum value from you this morning. (laughs) Absolutely. You need a cup of tea. Um, Because it is the morning. (laughs) Yeah, I'm allowed. (laughs) Milk in second. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. We'll be asking. (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Louise Allen-Walker. And we'll be back in two weeks' time. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr. Louise Allen Walker, Programme Director of the MSC Psychology and Education here at Cardiff Met. Thanks to Louise and there are plenty more goodies from her in the episode notes. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back in your ears with something else interesting in a fortnight. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.